0: Amen. Perfect peace and perfect rest. How do we attain that? How do we live that out? How are we to understand how to have perfect peace and rest? Such an appropriate song as we enter into the last chapter in the entire Bible. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. Last week we were able to finish the the vision of heaven that John was able to see. And now we enter really the epilogue. We enter the conclusion. We enter all of the remarks that Jesus is going to tell John in such a way that John will encourage the churches with the application of the message of the book of Revelation. As I was thinking about this section of Scripture, as I was pondering the words here and pondering even the song that we just sang, perfect peace and rest, I, want, I wonder what brings you hope, what gives you confidence to get you through the day, to get you through the week, to get you through the month, to get you through the year, or to get you to the finish line in your life. One man said it this way, a man can endure anything if he has hope. That sentence was spoken by Ernest Gordon, a Scottish captain and an author. Uh, He wrote the book Through the Valley of the Quay, which became a movie in 2001 entitled To End All Wars. Uh, Through the Valley of the Quay is Ernest Gordon's harrowing autobiography telling of the account of Allied soldiers being captured by Japanese soldiers forced to build that infamous railway of death between Thailand and Burma during the height of World War II. Ernest Gordon would go on to become the dean of the chapel of Princeton University, and he was one of those prisoners. He was beaten to death violently by the guards. He was left for dead. And there were two individuals, both of whom were Christians, who nursed him back to life. One of them was a man by the name of Dinty Moore, and the other was Dusty Miller. Dusty Miller would actually go on to be crucified, literally crucified. Because of his faith, Japanese soldiers mockingly martyred him by affixing his body to two wooden beams and crucifying him. Before Dusty Miller's death, Ernest Gordon remembers a conversation with him where Dusty's joy and confidence and assurance and hope blew Ernest Gordon away. And Gordon said, how is it that in the midst of all of this suffering, in the midst of all of this pain, in the midst of all of this agony, you can have joy and hope? How is that possible? To which Dusty said, a man can endure anything if he has So, my question to you is, what is your hope? What is your hope? Where does it come from? So often we see in the world, it comes from the power of positive thinking, right? Just think positively and you'll have hope. We can all say with a hearty amen, that doesn't work at all. It's not the power of positive thinking that gives you hope. Where is your confidence? What is your hope? I can tell you three things that are my hope every second of every day. Number one, I have hope because Jesus has forgiven me. Number two, I have hope because Jesus loves me. And number three, I have hope because he's coming back to get me. That's my hope. And that's John's hope in the end of Revelation, knowing that his sins are forgiven, knowing that he has a great high priest whose name is love, and knowing that he will never be turned away, and that Jesus is coming quickly. This is the Apostle Paul's hope. You remember in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. So I go through the sufferings of this life with hope because there will be glory that will be revealed. He expands on that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, where he says, "...we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day, because momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." Continuing back in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, Paul says, In hope we have been saved, but that hope that is seen is not hope at all. For who hopes for what he already has, what he already has seen, what he's already enjoyed? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly await it. So, what are you eagerly waiting for? And how is it giving you hope? In our text this morning, we are going to see the beauty of the doctrine of Jesus' imminent return. He says that he's coming quickly. Some translations will say soon. He's coming soon. This is the doctrine of imminence. This captures the New Testament's teaching of the at-any-moment-ness of Jesus' return. He can come back at any moment. That does not mean immediate Imminence and immediate are not the same thing. Jesus will come back. We don't know when. It is imminent, but it's not immediate. But it's quickly approaching. We can't predict it. We simply are the community of hope to those around us, to show them we have hope that this day is coming. And that hope produces something. It has to produce something in us, or we don't genuinely believe that it's true. Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. You can just write this down. We're not going to turn there. Romans 13, Paul says, because of the second coming, because of our hope in heaven, we need to be changed now. We should walk differently now. He talks about walking with decency. He talks about not in sensuality or in strife or in jealousy or in carousing or in drunkenness, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is coming quickly. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that hope produces a life change in us today. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, that because we know the day of the Lord is quickly approaching, we need to purify ourselves today. And as we come to the end of Revelation, John is going to hear Jesus say the exact same thing. Jesus is going to conclude this letter by saying three times I'm coming quickly and three times there is something that must be produced in you because you know the truth of the book of Revelation. So what I want us to do, we're going to take three weeks to finish this book, Lord willing. We are going to look at verses six through seven this morning, then verses 18 through 15 next Lord's Day, and then 16th through the end of the chapter, the following Lord's Day. But I want us to read the entirety of this epilogue every Lord's Day leading up in these three weeks so that we get the entire tone of the conclusion of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 22, verse 6. John writes, And he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw it, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow slave of yours and of your brethren, The the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who's filthy still be filthy. Let the one who's righteous still practice righteousness. And let the one who's holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat of the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, what a privilege it is to open your word and to read. We we can almost feel what John would have felt as he wrapped up this letter, as he heard your voice, wrote these words down, and then was told, don't seal this up, but share this. Send it to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Send it around the world. Let them know I am coming quickly and let that produce in them a life change. God, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind this morning. We want the text to inform our hearts, our minds, our affections, our emotions, our wills. We want to be changed, but that's impossible apart from you doing that work of changing us. So, Father, we ask the the prayer that we pray every Lord's Day, that you would be pleased to work through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Without you doing that work and giving us the gift of illumination, we will not understand what it is that we are to do with the words that we are hearing. So be our teacher, be our guide, be our greatest joy, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest treasure, and be our hope, both now and forevermore, until we see you face to face. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7, John sees and hears the angel give him the ending of this book. And he says, the words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take pass, or quickly take pass, take place, come to pass. And behold, Jesus picks up the pen, as it were. I am coming quickly. These things will soon take place and come to pass. But then Jesus says this, blessed is he who, who heeds or obeys the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who not just hears the words of this book, not just agrees with them, not understands them, but obeys them. This is the sixth of seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. How blessed is the one who obeys these words. So we have to ask the question, How do you obey these words? How do you obey the book of Revelation? I understand Revelation chapter 2 and 3. That one seems easy to apply, to obey. Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, that makes sense. God told them things that they needed to do, things they needed to stop doing. We can obey that. But how do you obey a vision of a great prostitute, riding on a beast? How do you obey that? How do you obey chapters 6 through 21? How do you obey these things? That's the question we have to ask ourselves both today and next Lord's Day. I believe that there are six different ways that we are to obey the book of Revelation. Three found in our text this morning and three found in the text that we will look at next week. Three ways that we are to obey And this isn't a one-time obeying of this book. This is a present tense, keeping, heeding, keeps on keeping, continually keeps. This is a call for perseverance, for obedience, to continue all the way to the end. So, how are we to obey the book of Revelation? Number one, we are to, if we're going to obey this book, number one, we must trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. If we're to obey the book of Revelation, we first must trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. This is verse 6. The angel says these words are faithful and true. They're faithful and true because they come from the Lord, the God who is faithful and true. These words will come to pass. These words are as good as done. There's no way that it will not happen. It would be tempting for us to think, well, maybe it's going to happen, but not in the way that it's going to happen. Or think of all that we've looked through, the good and the bad. Think of all the terrible acts of judgment that we've seen over and over and over again as we've studied this book. It'd be tempting for us to to say, well, that's just an allegory for evil, and evil will lose. It's not actually going to happen the way that it's being described with the the demon-like locusts and all these different things. That's not the way it's going to happen. But here, at the end of the book, God says, this is exactly how it's going to happen. Maybe it's the good. Maybe as we've looked at the good, we've meditated on the good of heaven, the hope that we have in heaven. We've meditated on that hope for the last month and a half. I think as we read verse 6, There should be a pause in our hearts because John has to be reassured that this will actually happen. It's almost as if it's too good to be true. And so the angel says, I know it seems like this is impossible, but it's going to happen. Are the promises of heaven so amazing in your hearts and in your minds that you need reassurance? Trust me, it will happen. John has heard such massively glorious statements. A.T. Pearson says it this way, "...in the end, there will be no more curse, which is perfect restoration. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, which is perfect administration." God's saints shall serve him, which is perfect subordination. They shall see his face, which is perfect transformation. His name shall be on their foreheads, which is perfect identification. There shall be no night there and no candle there and no light or sun there, for the Lord gives light to them, which is perfect illumination, and they will reign forever and ever, which is perfect exaltation. Maybe that seems too good to be true, and the angel says to John, I know it seems that way, but it's going to happen. Wilbur Smith says it this way, all the glorious purposes of God ordained from the foundation of the world have now been attained. In the end of this book, we've seen the culmination of all of human history now attained. The rebellion of angels and mankind is all and finally subdued as the king of kings assumes his rightful sovereignty. Absolute and unchangeable holiness characterizes all within the universal kingdom of God. The redeemed made so by the blood of the lamb are in the resurrection and in eternal glory. Life is everywhere, and death will never intrude again. The earth and the heavens, both are renewed. Light, beauty, holiness, joy, the presence of God, the worship of God, service to Christ, likeness to Christ, all of these are now abiding realities. The vocabulary of man, made for life here, is incapable of truly and adequately depicting what God has prepared for those that love him. And that's why the angel says, I know it seems like there's no way this will ever happen. But it's going to happen. And that's the way we obey this book. First, we obey by saying, we believe it's going to happen. We trust that it's going to happen. And if you're here this morning and you wonder, is this the actual way that human history will end? Is this the actual ending for everything that we see? Is this how it's all going to go down? The angel puts a divine stamp of approval, of authority, and of trustworthiness on this book. When he says, the words are faithful and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his slaves the things which must soon take place or must soon come to pass. The angel is telling John, you need to hitch the book of Revelation to all of the Old Testament prophets and prophecy. Hitch the book of Revelation to all Old Testament prophets and prophecy. The same prophets and the same prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, the same God that brought those to pass will bring Revelation to pass. So my question to you is, in what way were the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus true? Think about this. In what way were the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus true? Was it just vague General, this is going to happen, but we don't really know specifics of how it's going to happen? No. They're per- precisely and literally true. Just think about a couple of them. Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. We knew where the Messiah was going to be born, he was going to be raised in Nazareth. He would be God and be killed by God, he would be sold for pieces of silver, he would die with no broken bones. He would die as a poor criminal, in the death of a poor criminal, but he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. The list goes on and on and on, but every single prophecy about Jesus, specifically written in the Old Testament, was specifically fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's why this angel says just the same way that the Old Testament prophets wrote down a prophecy about the Messiah, and it came true perfectly, literally, and specifically. So, so too this book in every single detail is going to come true. Specifically, literally. Not just The book of Revelation is not just some good will ultimately triumph over evil. That's true, but every single aspect of what is happening in this book will happen in the future. We know that because... The one who wrote this book is faithful and true. Remember, chapter 19, Jesus is described as the one who is faithful and true. He is faithful and true. His words are faithful and true. This book possesses the exact same nature as Jesus Christ. He is faithful and true, and the words that he speaks are faithful and true. And they must soon take place. End of verse 6. They must soon take place. This is the book end to chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is given to John to show the churches the things which must soon take place. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen soon. So number one, if we're going to obey this book, we need to trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. Never doubt the integrity of this book. Trust it. Live according to it. Every single promise that it makes is a yes and amen in Jesus. Number two, if we're going to obey this book, we need to anticipate and exult in Christ's return. We need to anticipate and exult in Christ's return. Number one, we saw in verse six, these words are trustworthy. They're faithful and true, and so we need to trust them. Number two, verse seven, behold, I am coming quickly. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. That word, behold, pay attention to this. Listen to this. Make sure your ears are up. Sometimes pastors will say, everybody, you know, eyes up, look at me, something like that. That's what Jesus is saying. Stop taking notes and look at him and hear him say, and he says it three times in the end of this Book in the end of this chapter. I am coming quickly. Behold, I am coming quickly. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. I am coming quickly. The word quickly, your translation might say soon, quickly, it, it refers to speed, yes, but there's so much more in that word. It's the Greek word takos, which uh, a, a tachometer. Um, We get the same word, tachometer, comes from that Greek word tachis. So, tachometer is that uh, next to your speedometer in your car that tells you how fast you're going. A tachometer is the thing that's to the left or maybe to the right, it's that little thing that uh, just kind of sees the RPMs, the revolutions per minute. How fast is your engine turning? It's revving up, it's getting faster, it's revving up more quickly. So, one way you could understand this is Jesus is saying, I'm revving up to come quickly. I'm revving up. There's an energy and a speed, yes, but there's also an earnest desire. There's an excitement. The same word is used in the book of James. You remember, be quick to hear. Be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to become angry. That idea of quick, not just speedy to hear, but excited, leaning in, eager to hear, revved up in your excitement to hear. Same word is used in that parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. When the father sees the prodigal return home, and he says, come quickly, bring the robe quickly. Yes, speedily, but excitedly. If a servant came with the robe, running as fast as they could and said, here it is. The father would not be happy with that. So it's not just do it quickly, it's do it with excitement and earnestness. Jesus is saying, listen to this. I am earnest in my coming again. I am excited to return. He wants to be with you. That's what John 17 says, right? Remember in John 17, he prays, Father, I desire that those whom you have given to me be with me where I am. And if they don't die to be with me, I want to go to get them. Brothers and sisters, do you realize Jesus is excited to come get you? My question is, are you excited to be with him? He cannot wait to come get you. Are you excited to be with him? What word would you use to describe your Christian life? Today, think about it today. Would you say that your Christian life is characterized by being zealous, by an eagerness, an earnestness, by being hungry for the things of the Lord, being devoted to the things of the Lord, being sacrificial with others, serving others, steady, consistent, diligent, faithful? How would you describe your Christian walk? Maybe on the other side, you might say more on the end of sluggish, inconsistent, lethargic, The doctrine of the imminence, the imminency of Christ, his return, the imminent nature of him coming back. That doctrine is meant to wake us up with eagerness. He's coming to get you. Do you want to be with him? How important is the reality of his second coming to you? How often do you speak with your friends of the second coming? How often do you sing, listen to songs, sing in your car on the way to work? How often do you sing songs? about the second coming. I think that there are two dangers for believers. You can go to one of two sides of the extremes. One is we only ever always look at the first coming of Christ. Now, the first coming of Christ is imperative. It's absolutely necessary. We need the birth, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Savior. We need that. But oftentimes, in conversation with believers, I see believers just terminating on the first coming of Christ. Who really cares about the second coming? It'll happen when it happens. I don't really care about it, and it doesn't impact my life at all. I'm just focused on the first coming of Jesus Christ. I would just plead with you. The first coming of Jesus Christ is not complete if we just leave it there And we don't long for and look for and exalt in and anticipate the second coming of Jesus. There's another danger. Sometimes we only focus on the first coming to the negation of the second. Sometimes we do the opposite. There's some people who are so focused on the second coming that they forget the first coming has massive ramifications for the way we live life up until the second coming. These people tend to do that newspaper exegesis that we talked about, right? Where every new current event thing has to be an end times reality. Uh, COVID vaccination has to be the mark of the beast, right? This is that, that newspaper exegesis because people are so focused on only the second coming to the negation of the first and the way that the cross and the resurrection and the ascension changes their lives today. What we need to do is marry both of those together. That's what Jesus did. That's what Christ did at the ascension. You remember, he ascends into heaven. He ascends from the Mount of Olives. And the very first thing that's said from the angels to the people who are there at the Mount of Olives, at the ascension, the very first thing that's said is, he's going to come back the same way that he left. He's coming back again. Now take that message. You've already seen the cross. You've already seen the empty tomb. You've now seen the ascension. Now take this message with you into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. He's coming back again. Marry both of those. And if you do marry both of those, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes everything in the way that you live your life. It changes the way that you think about waking up every morning and the job and responsibility you have as a follower of Jesus. In 1789, I love this illustration, the sky of Hartford, Connecticut darkened so much that there were some in the House of Representatives that day that feared that the end of the world was coming. So they clamored for an immediate adjournment. We're done, the end of the world's approaching. It's probably one of those days, you've seen it, right? It's a beautiful sunny day, and then just this massive cloud goes in front of the sun, and you're like, whoa, something changed. That's probably what happened. The Speaker of the House... Colonel Davenport rose to his feet and he said these words, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. It's all we know. If it's not, there's no cause for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. So therefore, bring more candles in so we can see and let's have at it. I love that. Either today is the day Jesus is coming back And if that's the case, let's keep on worshiping and serving Him. Or this isn't the day that He's coming back. And if that's the case, let's keep on worshiping and serving Him. But here's the reality. Knowing that that day is coming and it's quickly approaching makes us wake up, makes us anticipate, wait a second, our Savior, our Lord is coming back. Do we want to be found sleeping? Do we want to be found lethargic or do we want to be found with great anticipation and excitement. I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you. Let's think if you were told that some amazing dignitary was going to show up at your house for dinner tonight. You'd probably leave the service early to make sure everything was ready. You got to get food, start cooking, get everything ready, clean the house. How much more so the God of the universe saying, I'm here. I'm coming for you. His second coming should encourage us in our responsibilities as believers. And you'll know that the return of Jesus Christ has appropriately gripped you when the expectation of it becomes a predominating influence on the way you live. You'll know that the expectation of his second coming has gripped you when you're constantly living in light of it, you're thinking about his second coming and it influences and impacts everything you do. It will revolutionize everything. So if we're going to obey the book of Revelation, number one, we need to trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. Number two, we need to anticipate and long for Christ's return. We don't just say, well, he's coming back, but that doesn't make a difference in my life. No, behold, pay attention, wake up, I'm coming quickly. And then he says, blessed is he who obeys these words. He's these words, who lives according to them, who does them. So, third way that we obey. We already read several verses that say, if you know that the Lord is coming back, it'll change the way you live your life. There's one that I left out. So turn in your Bibles to 1 John. This is all over the Bible, but turn to 1 John chapter 3. Just a couple couple books over, 1 John chapter 3. And this leads to our third point. Not only, number one, trust the faithful and true words of our trustworthy God. Number two, anticipate and long for and exult in Christ's return. But number three, if we're going to obey the book of Revelation, we must prepare ourselves now for his return. Prepare yourself now. If you're going to obey this book, you're going to realize he's coming again. He's coming soon. He's coming quickly. And prepare now for that day. Moral imperatives always grow out of redemptive indicatives. Our duty to God is always a consequence of what God has first done for us. And so what you believe will always determine how you behave. And if you behave contrary to what you claim to believe, then you don't really believe it. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15. The entire argument of Paul is that there is a resurrection from the dead, And therefore, after much ink has been spilled, all the way into verse 58, he says, therefore, because we know there is a resurrection from the dead, we know there is a judgment in the afterlife, we know there are rewards for those that have lived according to God's word. We know those things. Therefore, we live differently. Be immovable. Be unshakable. You know that your toil is not in vain. Labor hard. The moral imperative grows out of a redemptive indicative. The return of Jesus does the same thing. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See, behold, it's a similar word to what Jesus said in Revelation 22. Behold, pay attention to this. Look at how great a love the Father has given to us. Literally, the how great a love. You could translate that with the words in the Greek to of what country this love is from. See of what country. This is out-of-this-world kind of love. There is no love like this love. And he has given it to us. He's bestowed it on us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. He graciously gifted us love. And we've been called children of God. And such we are. Such we are. Again, it's almost a reality that's so amazing. It's too good to be true. And so John says, this is what he said about us. And by the way, it's true. It's true. It's because of this, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. We've been adopted out of this world into the family of God. And therefore, we're in a completely different family. And our old family doesn't recognize us anymore. Our old family doesn't understand who we are, why we love the things we love, why we hate the things we hate. We have a foreign alien love upon us, so we have become foreign and alien to this world around us. We bear the family name of God himself, and so we live differently than the world. But that's okay. It's okay not to be loved and accepted by the world if we are loved and accepted by the Lord. He says, Beloved, verse 2, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. I love that. Remember from last week, there were a lot of questions in our, our little miscellaneous sermon on the realities of heaven and all the questions that we've, we've talked about and asked and wrestled through over what heaven will be like. There were a lot of those questions that we said, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say. I love that. John says that here. We don't know as of yet what will be. Remember from last week, how old will we be in heaven? We don't know. We don't know. John tells us, we don't know. Will we eat meat in heaven? We don't know. I really hope so, and I, I think that there's a way that God will do that, but we don't know. We don't know how that's going to happen. What, how are we going to do these things? I love John. Well, we don't know, but we do know two things. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. So we know that, number one, he's coming back, and we know, number two, we're going to be like him, because we're going to see him just as he is. We're going to see Christ just as he is. Now, that leads to verse 3. These are the indicatives, now the imperatives. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If we know that the trustworthy and true and faithful God has spoken these words and says, I'm coming back, and we trust him, And we long for it, just the way he longs to come be with us. Behold, I am coming quickly. There's an eagerness and a desire for him to come be with us, and we have an eagerness and a desire to be with him. That should then lead to this third imperative, this third aspect of how we obey the book of Revelation. We must purify ourselves, prepare ourselves. We know the pure and holy one is coming back to get us. We do not want to be found impure on that last day. Martin Luther used to say, I just have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Today and the day of the second coming. And I'm living in light of that. This day will be lived in light of that day. So if you have the hope of the second coming, John says in 1 John 3, and Jesus will tell us uh, next week in verse Uh, 8 through 15 in chapter 22 of Revelation. You will change your life. You will purify yourself. You will work and live differently. The question is, though, what is the standard of purity? We are going to purify ourselves. What's the standard of purity that John tells us? Just as he is pure. If the standard of purity is looking around and saying, well, I'm better than so-and-so, we might take comfort in that. But if the standard of purity is absolute holiness, absolute sinlessness, perfection, we will look and say, I will always fall short of that. There's no way I can ever attain to that. But notice that that does not change our attitude or our motivation. It doesn't change the energy with which we pursue it. It doesn't affect us in a negative way because it makes us press into the grace that motivates holiness. It makes us press into the the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. My, My plea to all of us is do this today. Do this today. Run to Christ today. If you're here and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you are harboring some aspect of sin or you're harboring some aspect of bitterness or something that's going on in your life, some unreconciled relationship... You do not want to be found on that last day. Just think about this. You in your hardness of heart over your sin, you're bitter against somebody else and you don't like them and you don't want to see them again and you're just done trying to reconcile. And you're sitting on your bed and you're seething over this bitterness. Just, they annoy me so much. And then Jesus comes back. And the last thing that you said before he calls you home is, they annoy me so much. Oh, he's coming back. Jonathan Edwards, when he wrote his resolutions, he said, I want to be doing the very thing that I hope to be doing when Jesus returns. I don't want him returning when I'm in sin. I don't want him returning when I'm harboring bitterness. I don't want him returning when I have unreconciled relationships. I want to be ready and prepared when he returns to say thank you and I'm ready. Do this now. Brother or sister, if you are in any place where you, you know the Holy Spirit even now is encouraging your heart to deal with something. Deal with it now in light of the second coming. Purify yourself now just as he is pure. Press into the grace of God and say, I want to be done. I want to be done with that sin. I want to be done with that bitterness. I want to be done. And I want to cling to Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know if you are saved, you do not know Jesus Christ. You don't know the hope that we have in the second coming of Christ. Maybe you hear about Jesus. Maybe you've heard of Christ before. Maybe you've experienced some level of uh, Bible teaching. But you just kind of say, I don't get it. I don't understand. Why is it so great that Jesus is coming back? I I just praise the Lord that if that's you, you're here this morning. I praise God that you're here to hear this message because God in his grace has brought you here To tell you, you have been given grace. You have a chance today to repent. That's what we've been studying in the book of Acts. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Turn now. Turn today. What are you turning from? What are you turning to? You are turning from sin. What we in our flesh love so much, Christ in his grace came and pulled all of our sin and put it on himself on the cross and was punished in our place, bearing our penalty. So that the wages of our sin that we justly deserve would fall on Christ. God the Father would treat his own son as if he had lived your sinful life and my sinful life. So that God the Father could treat you and me as if we had lived Christ's righteous perfection. Even though we have never done that and we never could do that. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you don't know if you are saved, you are in a precarious place where your sin still remains on you, abides on you. And John 3 says that the wrath of God also abides on you. The judgment and the penalty and the punishment for sin remains on you now. But God's brought you here today to hear that there is a way that's been made for you to be forgiven for you to be pardoned, for you to be reconciled, for that sin, that guilt, that shame to be taken away. And for the offense that you've lived against a holy God, God in his grace has said, I will take that away and remove it as far as the east is from the west. You might say, well, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to earn that? What do I have to do to get that, to deserve that? The answer is nothing. In fact, the Bible would say, that if you try to earn God's love, if you try to do something and say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things for you, on the last day he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because your relationship with God is not dependent on your ability to make God love you. Your relationship with God is dependent on God's kindness in loving you while you were his enemy. So I would plead with all of us, let the kindness of God this morning Bring you, draw you to repentance. And then you will look at your sin and you will say, God, give me a taste for holiness and righteousness and glory such that sin just goes away. I, I hate what I once loved and now I love who I once hated. Towards the end of the 19th century, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel woke up one day to find his own obituary in the newspaper. It read this, quote, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and because of that, he died a very rich man. First of all, just imagine that. Imagine reading that. Alfred Nobel died in a... I'm alive. I'm Okay, this is strange. But he read the line, he devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and because of that, he died a very rich man It was his older brother who had died not him obviously the newspaper reporter had messed it up but that line reading that line in the newspaper changed nobel he decided he didn't wanted to be known he wanted to be known for something other than providing a means of killing people and amassing a fortune in the process so he initiated what we know as the nobel Peace Prize, an award given to scientists and writers who foster peace. And he said this by way of explanation. Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph midstream and write a whole new one. That's today for you and for me. We know that The day is coming when we will die. We also know the day is coming when Christ will return. And God in his grace has said, today is the day. Repent. But the reality of the gospel is it's not repent, start working harder, and write a new epitaph for yourself. No. The gospel says, turn to Christ who will write the new epitaph for you. And what will that epitaph say? it will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And if you long to hear those words and you anticipate the day when those words will be spoken and you live today in light of that day, it revolutionizes everything. Run to Jesus today. Be changed by him today. Like one of the hymns that we've sung before, Come then, repenting sinner come, approach with humble faith. Oh, what thou wilt, the total sum is canceled by his death. His blood can cleanse the blackest soul and wash our guilt away. And he will present us sound and whole on that tremendous day. So how do we obey the book of Revelation? We trust the faithful in true words. Of our trustworthy God. We anticipate and long for and exult in the return of Christ. And as we wait, we prepare ourselves today for that day, for his return. Richard Baxter, the old Puritan preacher, said, Our liveliness in all of our duties. Our enduring of tribulation, our honoring of God, the vigor of our love, our thankfulness, all of our grace, yes, the very being of our religion and our Christianity depend on the believing and our serious thinking of our rest in heaven. Someone asked him one time, how do you persevere in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain? He said, easy, meditate on heaven for 30 minutes every day. Meditate on heaven. 30 minutes every day. So, I want to give you that assignment. I want to give us, CBC, as a church, this assignment. We'll shorten it a little bit, make it a little bit more attainable. We'll shorten the length. We'll shorten the duration. But I want us to put this into practice to apply what we're learning even this morning. Here's our assignment, CBC. Starting today, meditate on the second coming of Jesus and on heaven for 10 minutes every day this week. We'll talk about it on Sunday. We'll see how it went. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the three aspects of obeying the book of Revelation and put them together. Let them be interwoven together Number one, don't just sit in your bed and ponder heaven. No, let the scriptures inform your thinking of heaven. So if we're going to trust the faithful and true words of God, go to the scriptures, read passages about heaven. Maybe go back to some passages in Revelation or some of the passages that you've written down that you weren't able to look at today. Go back and read those passages. Let the trustworthy and true and faithful words of our Savior inform your thinking on heaven. Then, number two, worship God for it. Anticipate his return. As you meditate on the verses that you're reading, long for his return, long for heaven. Pray for Christ to come quickly. And then number three, ask, how should this change my life today? How should this change my life today? 10 minutes every day this week. Start today. As you go out to, to lunch with somebody, as you go hang out at somebody's house, you're all welcome to come over to my house. As you go hang out, Start today. Open the Bible, read a passage, and start meditating on heaven together. Take all the problems in your life, all the problems in this world, and throw them into the mix of the glories of heaven. And encourage one another. As the community of hope that we are, it'll be worth it all that day. He's coming quickly. He hasn't forgotten He's not slow to keep his promises. He's waiting for more people to repent and to turn and trust him. So go out into the highways and byways and tell them that Jesus is the savior that they need that can satisfy their souls beyond anything they could possibly comprehend. Live in light of that. And that day will change everything. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so powerful, so practical, We thank you for the gospel that changes us from the inside out. We don't have to look at the end of our life and say, okay, I need to make the changes on my own strength. Yes, we work as believers, and we work hard as believers. But we work hard knowing that it is you who is at work in us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So, Father, we want to confirm these realities to our hearts this morning. We want to plead with you as we sing, as we rehearse the gospel in our own lives. We want it to change the way we live today. Crying out, help us now to live a life dependent on your grace. Keep our hearts, guard our souls from all of the evil that we face. You and you alone are worthy to be praised with our every thought and our every deed. So, O great God of highest heaven. Glorify your name through us. May we live according to your word. May we trust it. May we long for Christ's return. And may we prepare our hearts now in purity and holiness and righteous living for that amazing day. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.